Welcome to the Storyteller series, a Night Shift Radio original. Today's story is written by Elise Stevens and is titled Untrained Luck. Our narrator is Fallout Plays, Mag is played by Elise Stevens, Rinwall is played by Guy Messerly, Nasheed is played by Hasham Al Shazli, and Leo is Dahlia Ramahi. This episode is directed and edited by Mike Wyan Jr. Audio production is by Josh Coy. For more information and to read our print edition, please visit nightshiftradio.com. You can also get info on all Nightshift Radio shows by signing up for our weekly newsletter in the show notes of this episode. You are about to enter a world unlike any other, a world where terror and imagination collide, where nearly anything is possible. This is Nightshift Radio Presents Suspense. I'm your host, Caleb. Allow me to welcome you back to the theater of the mind as we bring you this classic series from the golden age of radio. We've resurrected all of the available original episodes, unaltered, for the sole purpose of introducing a new generation of listeners to this magical world. Dubbed Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills, Suspense originally ran from 1940 through 1962, culminating in 946 episodes and featuring renowned voice talent from the worlds of cinema and radio. The many tales of suspense span across mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, all sharing the common goal of hooking the listener until the very end. It is my sincere hope that this show can inspire and entertain you as it did my younger self and so many others. So be sure to subscribe for new episodes daily, wherever you get podcasts. And now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and set your imagination free in a world of mystery, intrigue, and yes, suspense. Please, enjoy our story. Mag forced herself to think about anything except the crescents glued inside her boot heel while the immigration officer addressed her in Hinchi, the official dialect. What brings you to Palab? His black eyes studied her face from beneath his green wool cap. She smelled desert dust on his jacket. Overhead, an icy stream of conditioned air warned of crackling heat outside. Even here, she tasted the bitter tang of Palab's soil. Mag had thought her previous visit to this country had been her last. Life and survival had other ideas. Business, she said. Your line of work? I'm a mediator. I've come to resolve a dispute. Really? His eyebrow twitched. And who are your clients? I can't... say. She grasped fleetingly for the hinchy word for disclose. That would have sounded politer. Then again, disclosing the identities of her clients with the reputations for violence and disregard for the law would endanger Mag's own safety more than a mild discourtesy. The officer nodded. Did you take classes for this? A university degree? Mag shrugged and turned her palms skyward as per local custom. Some skills I taught myself. For others, I took lessons. She'd built the bulk of her meditation skills from a childhood spent pulling her parents off each other. The day she'd come home to find her mother's neck broken, body limp on the kitchen table, her father showering in the bathroom, she'd pulled her 11-year-old sister Nika onto the firebrand and gunned the bike out of town. The officer tapped an unlit cig against Mag's pack. Anything to declare? She opened her jacket and laid out her handgun, permit for the gun, echo tin, snoop, and wallet. 
The moon blade tucked into the small of her back remained hidden and undeclared, as did the crescent coins in her boot. She'd learned from her first time inside Polyp's borders that extra weapons and secret finances were always wise. As she began to unclip her thermopin from her lapel, the officer flicked two fingers to dismiss the effort. He nodded at the items on the counter, and she put them away while he lit his cig. Do you think your clients will find an agreement? He asked casually. She shrugged again. If the eye shows mercy. If the eye shows mercy. He echoed, grinning and reached for his stamp, then paused midway and shook his head. Mag's relief froze in her chest. My apologies, the officer said. You must go here first. He motioned her to a curtained room labeled secondary questioning. As Mag entered, the room wafted scents of dust and disinfectant. A woman wearing a starched blue scarf sat behind the table. She pointed to Mag's arms. Roll up your sleeves. So the Palabi government was searching for sympaths now. Mag had seen the same witch hunt play out in Palab's neighbor, Kesh, which had required sympaths to publicly register last year. All that had done was spur a wave of mob killings, death by bloodletting and eye gouging. Mag held no high hopes of enlightenment for the days ahead. She doffed her riding jacket, bearing her forearms. The female inspector met Meg's eyes with disinterest, then set to swabbing her arms to check for concealed sympath heat scars. Mag's mind pinged back to her first run-in with the sympath. She'd been young in her career and hadn't yet earned enough to purchase a thermopins protection. The sympath had emotionally pushed Mag into negotiating an imbalanced divorce settlement in which the already traumatized children were placed in the neglectful parents' custody. Her throat tightened at the memory, and her mind's eye still burned with the sight of the sympath's whirled heat scars peeking out behind the shirt sleeve as he'd sauntered from the room. Mag had known then what he'd done to her, but it had been too late. She'd sold her mother's necklace the next day in order to buy a thermopin. Never again. Palab's government appeared to have taken a similar stance. When the inspector felt satisfied with her scrutiny, she waved Mag to the room's egress with a flat, Welcome to Polyp. Mag shrugged back into her jacket. She'd wished for a gifting as a child, but now felt grateful to bear nothing. As her boots hit the pavement outside the customs station, a wave of heat engulfed her. She retrieved the firebrand, swung onto the seat, and drove for the border of the town of Ajira. The sky above her was not yet stained with purple and black stripes. Then again, by the time the storm stripes appeared, May the eye show mercy she muttered under her breath. Minutes later, Mag snapped her kickstand onto the oily asphalt of a fuel station. The air was a filmy haze of petrol, honey-roasting pistachios from somewhere nearby, and burned rubber. As she topped off, she ran down her mental list. She'd already changed the bike's oil, filter, coolants, and checked her tread depth. One and a half days ride to LOI City, do the job, get paid, then buy space in a bunker to hole up for the storm. After refueling, Mag headed for the dingy lavatory and moved the crescents from her boot to a concealed money belt. Her reflection in the bathroom's cracked mirror halted her. A dull orange light burned at the tip of her thermopin. She tapped the sensor twice to reset it, but the pin flashed three more blinks and then went dead. She hissed. The ultra-sensitive temp sensor and proprietary pattern recognition software made thermopins expensive and costly to repair. Of course, today was when the device would finally stop working.
while a simmer could heat or cool a non-bioliquid, and an empath fed emotions into the subject's mind, always with a discernible push. A sympath bore a blend of both gifts and regulated sweat, blood, and other biofluid temps, causing an imperceptible emotional sway that was limited only by the sympath's line of sight. Sympaths bled excess energy from their hands at wavelengths with unique hot and cold signatures, the effect of which eventually scarred their forearms. Thermopins detected these sympath heat signatures. Mag's work could not be done without one. At least, not ethically. Her clients would doubtless bring their own pins for security at the upcoming negotiation, but now Mag would have to add repairs to the list of necessities piling up behind the expense of a two-week bunker stay. And asking to borrow a thermopin for her own mediation might erode her client's respect. Mag was cursing to herself as she exited the lavatory when she saw the kid. As a child, Mag and Nika had spent hours at fuel stations like this one, begging for spare change. This seven- or eight-year-old kid wasn't a street urchin. Those always traveled in twos or threes. He was alone. His clothes were grimy, and tight shirt sleeves hugged his narrow arms instead of the region's customary loose tunics. Hair straggled, lips chapped, eyes round with wariness. In a border town like Ajra, child trafficking stats gave mere hours before a vulture snatched him. Sure enough, lounging against one of the fuel towers was a man in a long tunic with sunglasses trained on the kid. Mag chewed her tongue, then shouted her best hinshi curse at the boy. Where have you been? The eyes of the other customers swung to her like magnets. The boy gaped. Mag stabbed her finger downward. Come here, and don't even think of leaving my sight again. The kid stumbled forward, his arms held warily at his sides. He had the sense to be cautious. Good. Go wash your face. Your father's missing work as it is. Mag pulled the kid into the lavatory and slammed the door. He sprang against the far wall, arms barring his face. From the shape of his eyes and his delicate nose, she guessed he was Keshian. Mag knelt. Listen. She spoke slowly, trying out her Keshrindi. I won't hurt you. His eyes sharpened with understanding, but his arms stayed raised. There are people outside who want... Mag searched her vocabulary. Who want to do bad things to you. He frowned and turned out his empty pockets. Had she just said someone wanted to rob him? She shrugged. It's your lucky day. She told him. I'll take you somewhere safe, but you must act like we know each other. Like we're friends. Friends? The boy said, using Mag's native tongue, Derek. She slanted him a sharp look. Had he recognized her accent? She shrugged. It didn't matter. She'd made her decision and she'd ride it out. She'd find the kid a youth hostel on the way out of town. He'd chosen to trust her. For his sake, she was grateful. What's your name, kid? Leo. She shook his hand. It was slick with sweat. I'm Mag. She repinned her hair, smoothed and tucked her headscarf, then marched back into the sunlight with Leo's hand inside her own. The man in sunglasses had already backed away as if sensing defeat. He made no move to follow as Mag buckled on her helmet and motored away. Leo locked his arms around her waist and the firebrand growled with hunger for the open road. Mag bit her lip. The youth hostels in this border town would be just as sketchy as the fuel station. She twisted the throttle and let the town's neon lights and stone spires blur into a dappled stream behind them. You'll stay with me tonight, she told Leo. 
The firebrand roared, and the kid dropped his head between her shoulder blades to brace himself for speed. Mag felt a crisp charge in the air, the promise of imminent, destructive change. The firebrand overheated three times that morning, which was unusual, but she'd never liked the Pallavi climate. At about noon, Mag gunned her throttle at a railroad crossing to clear the tracks just ahead of a train wearing rattling acid shields. Once across, Mag's shaking arms forced her to pull over. Despite the close shave with the train, the jitters surprised Mag. A few long drags on a cig restored her calm, but Leo clung to her even with the firebrand idling, his thumbs biting into her stomach. It was then that she realized he wore no helmet. She'd actually thought she was protecting him while she rode recklessly. Her cheeks flamed as she banked down the off-ramp to the next town. The mint tea she purchased from a street vendor was lukewarm, despite its iced claims, but even with its chalky residue from a cheap acid filter, it was better than her canteen slosh. She walked Leo and the firebrand past stalls of quick-harvest grains and outrageously priced cuts of meat. They passed two vendors in a shouting match. Mag's ears told her that if the first paused long enough to listen to the second's complaint, the matter could be quickly solved. She halted at a shop purveying breeches, chaps, gloves, and helmets. Leo pointed out a gray helmet emblazoned with a dagger on an aspen leaf. Like you, he whispered reverently. Mag snorted. It was cute that he wanted to match her, but Leaf Blade brand didn't come in child size. She parked the firebrand and chose instead a scratched green helmet that had been discounted, then handed Leo her tea while she haggled. She was so absorbed with blocking the vendor's clumsy, empathic pressure towards a higher price, she didn't notice Leo's sulk until the purchase was tucked into her pack beside a bonus tube of silver decal paint. She'd still probably overpaid. She took her tea back and drained it. It had cooled nicely inside the air-conditioned shop. Leo's mournful stare followed the leaf blade helmet halfway down the street. The vendors were already rolling up carpets and boxing wares, though the afternoon was still young. Lightning forked in the distance. She sniffed and smelled ozone on the wind. Days or hours now. A man in a black jacket with gold thread cuffs monitored the traffic from a street corner. That would be a peacekeeper employed by Nale Brinwall, one of her clients in the upcoming negotiation. Power and strength were Rinwall's trademarks. Mag buckled the helmet onto Leo and fought the urge to twist hard on her throttle. If the rains broke in the next hour, recklessness wouldn't get them into Elawi in time. Nothing would save them if the storm hit them on the open road. The highway grew more pocked and oilier with each mile, worming like a ravaging parasite into the humid gut of Palab. The smell of animal carcasses rose with the heat, and the still-living beasts prowled the roadside, lean bodies sharp against a blue sky that was starting to turn a disturbing shade of purple. Mag pulled over once to tear off a sprig of wild sage and tuck it inside her visor, where its scent repelled the stench of death. She'd charged twice her usual fee to account for the travel and low-visibility clientele of this job, but more than that, she'd charged extra for having to travel near the storm's onset. Then again, she might have charged four times her standard had her references not been fouled by two failed negotiations in a row. She'd lost her latter half payment for both of those gigs and had barely managed the bills to repair her hip, a casualty of one job's violent implosion. She knew her problem source, but like a loose bolt without a wrench, she couldn't reach in and fix it. Mag had lost her grip six months earlier when she'd received news that Nika had died of infection after a cut-rate abortion just like that. Words on a screen. Little sister gone.
she should have taken a break, but she needed the money. So she'd entered those last two jobs with deadened reflexes and paid for it dearly. When the job from Rinwall and Nasheed had hit Mag's inbox, she'd groaned at the Palabi address, but reminded herself that she was still far from being able to afford a storm bunker. She'd accepted. After another three-hour ride, she and Leo stopped briefly for jerky strips, bread, and water, then pushed on. When the sun had sunk almost to the horizon and Mag felt sand between her teeth, she checked her mileage and pulled off at the next campground. When she twisted to look at the kid, she saw bloodshot eyes, skin like a dried apricot, and a trail of crusted blood at the corner of his mouth. Not one complaint. At the campsite's check-in box, she inserted her coins and a red cube tumbled out of the lockbox's base with her campsite number. A small cabin would have been nice, or even one of the sturdy canvas tents, but after hours' entry, removed such options. We'll be roughing it, she told Leo. She switched to Keshrindi when she saw his blank stare. We'll sleep outside tonight. No one will trouble us here. The eyes and ears of a crowd. They guard us. He broke in, finishing her sentence in Derek. For now. He continued, still in Derek. We speak your words. I understand enough. Pride quirked his mouth. Fine by me. They washed at the campground restrooms and Mag moved her holster to a conspicuous position on her good hip. She walked with the firebrand and Leo past amber-orange flames and the sweet mesquite smoke of late lingering fires, nodding to fellow travelers. Mag had noticed more pink rivulet scars on faces and hands than when she'd traveled to Palab a year before. One in three now bore some mark of storm rain. At the campsite, she pushed the cube into its metal socket and a solar orb cast a thin glow onto the gravel lot, sweeping the base of a red cliff at the far end, the edge of a woven tent on the right, and a battered aluminum trailer with hand-painted Hinshi proverbs on the left. Leo chucked gravel at the cliffside and watched the dust puff. Light twinkled on his throwing hand, a bracelet. Not diamonds. No one puts diamonds on a kid this young. Unless it wasn't his. After wiping down the firebrand, Mag spread out her kerchief with flatbread, dates, dried apples, jerky, and water. Leo eagerly folded his legs under him. As he chewed, Mag let the humming generator from their neighbor's trailer drown her words. I have some questions, Leo, but first, I'll be up front. He frowned, then asked with a full mouth. In front of me? Up front. Honest. Mag said. He nodded. I want to help you, but helping costs money and I don't have extra. Do you have anything you could sell? Like this? She pointed to his bracelet. Leo swallowed his food, then clamped his hand over the bracelet. Oh, this is my luck, he said determinedly. My stars of... Of when I was born. His voice shook. My mother gave it. Okay, it's lucky. I get it. Luck is everything. How did you come to Palab? I ran. On foot? Yes, on my feet. I am fast. Was someone chasing you? His eyes didn't leave her face, but a part of Leo slid into shadow. He said, They come for my mother in our home. She was sick, could not go, but she told me run. She told me promise not stop until I see gold dome. The old site of Ajra's gilded palace. So this woman had made her son flee. Was your mother in trouble? He looked away. With flushed cheeks, he said, She is good person. 
Mag was silent. She was a good person, Leo said. They drained her. Spirit's blood. Mag cursed softly. I'm sorry, Leo. I'll stop prying now. He looked up at the darkening sky. The clouds were beginning to pile in the distance, but the wind was low. Not tonight. Here. Mag offered, digging in her pack. She slid her echo tin out of its wooden box and placed it in the corner of the emptied kerchief. Courtyard in Millian. She whispered into the box. The shiny sides flipped down and a small globe, bright as blue day, burned in the open. Leo's head whipped side to side as the walls around them sprang to soft, colored life. The box projected a bubbling stone fountain in the slap of water on flat stones. The cliffside, trailer, and tent flaps were eclipsed by bright awnings and spotless storefronts selling richly dyed clothing, fruit in bright, neat rows, and a bakery window piled high with sugar-dusted puffs. The sky above them glowed luminous. Leo opened his arms wide and laughed. Mag smiled. She'd captured the scene herself when her purse had been fat enough to keep two young women in Millian for a full dry season. Though hard times had often pressed her to sell the Echo Tin, she'd always found means to keep it. It stored up to 50 scenes. This courtyard was one of her favorites. While Leo amused himself by poking at items in the three-dimensional projection and watching his hand pass through, she laid out her statements from Nasheed and Rinwal to study. From what she'd gleaned during preparatory interviews, the two Duja tycoons had made a deal a few years ago, with Rinwal controlling sales of the addictive Duja north of the Hebra River while Nasheed sold to the south, but something had soured. Citizens had been killed in crossfire, and her clients now faced a government ultimatum they couldn't afford to ignore. Mag smirked as she read Nasheed's handwritten comment. I was happy to hire you after hearing your former client, Jave Nilam, say you pinned his collar with a blade-tip pen while he repeatedly broke your ground rules. You have a knack for making people listen. The story was true, and though it hadn't been her most level-headed choice, calculated risks were often necessary. Duja sales were illegal in Palab, but due to low levels of violence and generous contributions to the government, Rinwal and Nasheed had kept free of official intervention until this recent rash of killings. She looked up. Leo was poking his head out of the Echo Tin's projection the way a cornered rabbit might peer out at a fox. Whether he was a refugee or fugitive or something else, he wasn't about to tell her. She only knew he'd lost his mother. Gentle pity filled Mag's chest. She heard Nika's voice mocking her. Bandage up that bleeding heart. Though she felt sorry for Leo, if the kid had been Mag's client, her instincts said to fact-check every single thing he said. She returned to her notes. When Leo seemed sleepy, Mag leaned over the tin and said, Night mode. The million scene faded, replaced by a faint golden glow. Two guests. Set perimeter alarm. The tin chirped softly. Mag rigged sky cover from her travel tarp and gave her riding jacket to Leo. She wriggled into the smelly woolen jumper she'd stolen from her father on her last day home and promised herself that when she reached Hotel Alakesh, she'd use the in-house laundry to transform herself into the mediator her clients expected. The night was quite warm for early spring, another sign of the storm front. Mag rinsed her mouth, brushed her teeth, then checked on Leo. He'd already curled up beneath the tarp and was zipping himself into her jacket with his knees tucked. He looked like a leather egg. Leo fell asleep quickly and spent the next half hour filling the makeshift tent with noisy, unapologetic flatulence, as if to say, don't get attached to me, I promise constant irritation. 
An hour later, Mag rolled away, desperate for clean air. The desert night was thick with the scent of night-blooming Sirius and the taste of coming rain. She hurled a pebble, listened to it dust skip, then lit a cig and brought out the tube of silver decal paint. She loosened the tiny paintbrush taped to its side and held Leo's child-sized helmet at arm's length. After a moment's study, she began. The instant Mag woke, she felt the void. She reached for her pack. Canteen and food gone, wallet empty, and both the riding jacket and boy had vanished. She crouched, blinking, then mechanically closed the echo tin and packed it away. No one had snatched him. The tin's alert hadn't marked his exit. Leo had wanted to go. She looked at the small helmet she'd painted with an imitation of the Leaf Blade logo. She'd meant to surprise Leo with it in the morning. She cursed herself for being a sap. Mag washed at the restrooms, finger-combed her hair, replaced her scarf, and allowed herself to mourn her riding jacket for one caustic minute. Then she smoked a cig, and when she was sure she'd calmed, returned to the campsite. At least she'd tucked the ignition key into her bra. He hadn't had the nerve to grope there. And the crescents were still hidden in her money belt. Mag took her time packing up. Then, as she picked burrs off her boots, a motion caught her eye. A face watched her from behind the firebrand. She bolted to her feet, neck hot. Leo's face was crumpled. He pointed to her camp stove, and she saw coffee boiling in a pot. The pickings of her wallet sat beside Leo's shoes. He mutely offered a bunch of wild yellow primroses. She waited for a blubbering excuse, but instead Leo met her eyes and said, Before the sun, I walk away for one hour carrying your things. They much heavy in my hand, so I come back. He squared his shoulders. Decide I'm not thief. He held out the riding jacket to her. She drew the leather to her nose, then pushed her arms into the sleeves and crossed to the coffee. She poured a cup and took three slow swallows, letting him stew in his guilt. My world runs on second chances, but not third ones. She cleared her throat. <clears throat> if you weren't so cute, I'd have already shot off your thief's hand. Also, primroses are my favorite, you little shit. He grinned. Sheet lightning flashed behind him in the morning haze. She raised a finger. One more chance. Leo nodded, then unclasped his bracelet and held it out. Mag pushed it back. You need all your luck out here. Then, after a moment's hesitation, she showed him what she'd painted on the helmet. Oh, beautiful! Leo shouted, cramming the helmet onto his head. He caught her in a wild hug, then seemed to remember himself. Uh... Thank you, he said, bowing ceremoniously. You're welcome. As she made a final sweep of the site, Mag's fingers brushed her matchbook, tucked inside her jumper pocket. What kind of eight-year-old thief knew how to start fires without tools? Exactly how worried should she be? As she was securing her pack on the firebrand, Leo touched her arm. Maglin Greyhawk, he began, sobriety plain in his green eyes. I want to ask, if you... If you help me to learn who I do and am better. Mag flinched at his use of her full name. Then she remembered he'd ransacked her wallet. So the kid could read Derek as well as speak it. She said, By learn, do you mean school? You want a teacher? His face brightened with relief. Yes, a teacher. He swallowed, then said with deliberation, For me. Mag noted his strange intensity, then squatted to bring their eyes on level. If this job goes well, I'll have enough for room and board in an Alawi bunker to wait out the storm. 
I'd wanted a spot with a private kitchen. But if I don't really need that kitchen, I could find space for two. I must be losing my mind, she thought. I'm making a generous offer to a kid who just tried to steal me blind. But the words continued pouring. Maybe once the storm has passed, I could find you a school with late enrollment. Mag activated the firebrand's choke. How does that sound? Find a school, he repeated. (sighs) Did you understand anything else I just said? He wagged his head unconvincingly. Uh, uh, Most. Mag folded the kickstand. (laughs) Get on. The multi-spired outline of Hotel Alakesh was the grandest sight for miles, including Eloi's 300-year-old cathedral. Gleaming ramparts and polished roof tiles glowed the color of sunset and resembled a flaming crown. Mag and Leo agreed that they would pretend, if asked, that he was her personal attendant. At the city gate, Mag balked at the gatekeeper's exorbitant entrance fee. As she reached for her wallet, palms sweating slightly, Leo leaned around to stare at the gatekeeper. The man smiled at him and offered a discount on behalf of her hungry-looking kid. Mag was happy to take whatever kindness she could get. The hall clock read five minutes after one in the afternoon as Mag turned her room key in its lock. Leo sprang across the plush carpet toward the array of complimentary fruit and nuts. Mag stashed valuables in the room's safe, sent a bag of clothes to the laundry, then locked herself in the bathroom for a thorough washing. Half an hour later, the laundry returned, pressed and steamed. The Alakesh almost certainly employed a simmer. Mag dressed, then noted the emptied food bowls. Leo lay curled on the bed, eyes closed. Perhaps his flatulence of the previous night had been his stomach's distrust of a full meal after prolonged starvation. She tapped his shoulder and suggested he bathe, then called Petrin Nasheed's room and acquired permission to borrow his thermopin for the negotiation. She took a slow stroll through the hotel's courtyard, noting the sky's deepening shade of purple while she relished a cig, then returned to the room. Leo was asleep atop the bedspread. His wet hair smelled of orange blossom soap, but he'd put on the same filthy long-sleeved shirt again. She reached to touch his forehead, then stopped herself. She seated herself at the room's desk, back to the sleeping boy, and fixed her eyes on her notes. Big, important, I see in your face. What you do today? Leo asked. Mag sat at breakfast with him in the courtyard. He'd been slipping dried dates into his pocket. She said, I'm going to help some angry people find a way to agree. He leaned in. Angry people are dangerous, yes? You bring gun for shield? She smiled. No guns. Just mouths for talking and ears for listening and brains for thinking, hopefully. No one have guns? She shrugged. Well, someone usually smuggles something in, but I keep tempers in check so that no one uses them. Her hip throbbed in bitter protest. Then you take this. Leo held up his lucky bracelet. The conference room's twin chandeliers reflected on Mag's polished boots. Her buckles, buttons, even her gold nose ring were freshly shined. Leo's bracelet weighed heavily in her pocket. She'd purchased an expensive black scarf from the hotel boutique in order to wear Palab's traditional color of power. Mag had left Leo in the hotel room with plenty of vids and snacks and stern orders to stay put. She entered the conference room an intentional five minutes late. All were in attendance. The ice-blue marble floor was streaked with white branches and black flecks resembling a dark snowfall. 
A double row of brown earth stone pillars lined the hall like an orderly forest. Two tables faced each other, seating three delegates apiece. Before introductions, Mag silently scrubbed for bugs with her snoop, calibrated the borrowed thermopin, then strode to stand at the room's far end. She mentally summoned her clients' profiles as she surveyed them. Nalib Rinwal had held a national monopoly on Duja sales for 15 years. Five years ago, seeded sales south of the Hebra River to Petrin Nasheed. Lost wife to stomach cancer within the last year, but still wore a silver wedding cuff. Known for his severe temperament, Nalib Rinwal was also a traditionalist obsessed with reputation and honor. He sat to her right, flanked by his two adult sons, Ush and Isma. He wore a well-trimmed beard, black suit, and digital signature band on his right pinky. Ush, Rinwal's eldest, dressed like his father, but the younger Isma wore an azure collar beneath his jacket. Isma stared at Mag for a long moment, then absently rubbed his little finger as she turned aside. Petrin Nasheed had been raised by his uncle after losing both parents in a maglev wreck. Opened a business consulting firm at age 19. His acute intuition for social scenarios had routinely roused suspicions that led to repeated tests for empathic abilities, always with negative results. His unofficial slogan, I'm just good with people, seven years ago left the consulting world to enter the Duja trade. Business had thrived steadily until a recent outbreak of violent run-ins with Rinwall had burned bridges and dragged the government into the fray. Petrin Nasheed sat between his advisors, Morel Dijab and Liata Greensword. Nasheed flashed Mag a grin while his fingers spun a ballpoint pen in a complex weave. Both advisors' headscarves were flame orange. Dijab wore half-moon reading lenses and wrote on a tablet while Greensword watched the room with sharp, bright blue eyes. Mag drew a breath. As all of us know, we're here to resolve the rift between your two enterprises. As mediator, I'll work to facilitate terms that are well-balanced and acceptable to all. I offer the following. 1. Confidentiality on all matters discussed here. 2. Voluntary participation. I will not force you to concede any point. 3. Neutrality. I promise an unbiased stance. I will channel and facilitate discussion. I will not advise. The rules. Listen. Don't interrupt. When you do speak, strive for courtesy. She cleared her throat and paused. Nasheed seemed attentive, though his eyes were slightly reddened from lack of sleep or possibly substance indulgence. Rinwal wore stoic skepticism. Mag's gut said Rinwal would be her stubborn client. She continued. During my separate meetings with each of you, I established your objectives. Mr. Nasheed. You seek a stop to the recent wave of violence. Mr. Rinwall, you seek renewed adherence to your original contract terms, specifically that sales of Mr. Nasheed's Duja remain strictly south of the Hebra. Both sides nodded curtly. Good, no time wasted there. Four days ago, the Pallabi government instated a 5,000 crescent fine for each day that this dispute remains unresolved. This adds incentive to proceed with efficiency. Mag paused. Of course, the fact that no one had yet been jailed for the murders meant that government was still being generously paid off, to some extent. Rinwal was clenching his jaw in agitation. Nasheed raised his hand. Uh, I'd like to make an opening statement. Mag nodded. We're here about the killings. The trend began two months ago when Rinwal provided his so-called peacekeepers with assault mode scatterblitzes. 
This ridiculous stance of martial authority puts my vendors at a constant disadvantage. Nasheed looked sidelong at his advisors, then added, I'm well aware we could meet the challenge with bigger, better guns, but I've read too much history to think an arms race will solve matters. Rinwal grimaced, motioning for attention. Is there anything you wish to correct in Mr. Nasheed's statement? No, but I'll supply details that he blithely glossed over. Rinwal leaned forward, elbows brushing the tabletop. I issued those scatter blitzes after multiple safety complaints. My employees are like family, and I take their safety seriously. The younger Rinwal son rolled his eyes. Familial discord. Five years ago, I ceded the southern half of this country to Nasheed's sales, but he hasn't been satisfied with that. He's flagrantly stolen my customers. Then, when he resented my means of protecting my people and territory, he tainted a batch of douja during its bottling, which made my customers have violent nausea. Counselor Dajab read from her tablet. The precise contract terms should be noted here. The agreement appeared fair, but a close inspection of Palab's population density reveals the division of customers was steeply tilted in Mr. Rinwall's favor. Rinwall seemed ready to rebuff the claim, but Mag said, Yes, the population disparity between the North and South surfaced in both our pre-meetings. The gist of the contract was that Mr. Nasheed would buy raw Duja product from Mr. Rinwall's greenhouses at a minimal markup that was only to rise with the country's standard inflation rates. Mr. Nasheed's sales would be restricted to the South, which was less populated than the North. Significantly less. And the clientele is poorer and less civilized, if I may be blunt. He locked eyes with Rinwall. But I surprised you. Instead of weathering, my business thrived. But to address the accusation of tainting your duja, I suggest improving your quality control, since another bad batch could impair your credibility. Reading between those lines was simple. Nasheed had a man inside Rinwall's manufacturing plant. When Rinwall used his new guns, Nasheed had signaled his man to tweak a batch of duja that then sickened Rinwall's clients. If Rinwal's product could be made to seem unreliable, his customers would flock to Nasheed. Counselor Dajab handed Nasheed a simple, unadorned echo tin. He murmured into it. A projection of a scuffed brown glass bottle spun into view. Most of us know Rinwal's duja. It comes in one flavor and one strength. Highly intoxicating. All well and good, if that's what you like. But this is my duja. In the projection, a velvet curtain enclosed the room and a polished table appeared at the room's center bearing gold-etched glass vials. The projections can't carry smell, but I have vanilla, mint, and sandalwood scents, among others, Nasheed said. With intensities to match any passion, I proposed this product to Rinwell seven years ago. He turned me down. Then after I'd grown a business that was successful enough to worry him, we signed that stilted contract. He wanted to cut me off from his best cities and customers. He thought I'd dry up, but I didn't. Is it fair to say, Mr. Rinwall, that you underestimated the potential of Mr. Nasheed's business model? Rinwall hesitated, then nodded. Uh, it, it's dishonorable to begrudge a man his success. 
but I believe I can criticize Nasheed's disregard for terms. I've spent my life growing things, you see. He took out his own echo tin. It was twice the size of Mag's own, filigreed with spiraling swallows. He murmured into it, and the conference room was domed by glass and steel girders. Lush raised beds lined the ground in rows, bearing lime green stalks and tan blossoms. Furthermore, said Rinwall, my customers include the most influential families of Palab. I may not have a flashy product, but I have a time-tested tradition. I cannot abide the brazen attitudes of your vendors, Nasheed, slipping across the Hebra, enticing customer migration, having no scruples about whether your goods are resold up north. I'm not shooting people at every chance I get. Let's be clear on that, Nasheed snarled. Rinwal reddened. If you call self-defense a- Self-defense? Nasheed laughed coldly. <laughs> and this after you raise the cost of my raw duja to triple the rate of inflation, leaving me with no recourse but to swallow it? Okay. Mag raised both arms. We're at the heart of it. No. Nasheed stood. The heart is that my good friend Brossin Seth was murdered yesterday because despite this upcoming meeting, you still didn't call off your dogs. Mag absorbed this new information and watched Nasheed's face flush as he shoved a chip into his echo tin. She crossed to him and placed her hand firmly atop the box. Wait a moment, she said. Nasheed's eyes were flaming, but he eyed her unyielding stance and relented. Counselor Greensword whispered something in Nasheed's ear. He shrugged and replaced the chip in the echo tin with a different one. Mag turned to Rinwall. A man's broken word is quite an insult. Mr. Nasheed's contract violations have destroyed your respect for him, correct? Absolutely, Rinwal spoke coolly, eyes on Nasheed's face. And Mr. Nasheed, you seek an end to bloodshed, a peaceful way forward. Nasheed cleared his throat, struggling to speak. So the murdered man had truly been a friend. Even in Palab, where hyperbole was everywhere, he hadn't exaggerated this. Nasheed said at last, Yes, of course. Can we agree that peace and mutual respect are worthy goals? Mag let the awkward silence hang until both men gave verbal agreement. Now let me explain, Rinwald. I'm trying to do good business. It's no secret that my duja is more popular, but your family are harassing and shooting my vendors at the mildest provocation. And they're not just killing my guys. Children were hit by crossfire more than once. My wish is that duja sales throughout Palab would flourish. But that's too lofty a goal for today. I'd settle for keeping my people safe on the street and a fair cost for raw duja. His eyes glittered for a moment, then Nasheed added, I thought to share a view of the alley where Brusson's body was found instead. He glanced at Counselor Dejab. In better taste, I give you the medical examiner's report. He whispered into his echo tin and the report spun as a single page in three dimensions. Read it for yourself but I'll highlight the 37 bullet wounds all delivered from the back. His tongue was cut out. The room hung still until Rinwal said, Though this man's death was a mistake, 
I must say that threats to those under my protection will always be treated seriously. Mag knew Nasheed's next move before he took it. No apology. Mag held her breath. A nasty grin contorted Nasheed's face. Shall we talk about what's really threatening your family? Both the Rinwal sons flinched. Isma straightened. You've been trying to cover your son Isma's gambling debts for years now, Nasheed said as Greensword nodded beside him. Dijab handed Nasheed a tablet. He read it quickly, then said, Today we see he's not even wearing your family Dixig anymore, which means you've cut off his independent spending. Mag flicked a glance at the finger that Isma now held, studiously still. How recent was this development? Nasheed continued, volume mounting. You supplied false reasons for raising my raw duja cost because you needed funds to placate the casinos. You've even started selling your wife's jewels. I don't know what kind of deal you made to get those scatter blitzes, but it's obvious you aren't thinking with a level head. Rinwal had flushed from red to purple, which was notable given his bronze complexion. How dare you bring in my personal matters, he growled. You're not trying to make peace. You're trying to tear me down. We're going to take a recess. But a clatter of chairs drowned her voice as Rinwal, Nasheed, and their supporters took to their feet. A rapid assessment of both sides' confident postures told Mag that concealed weapons were in the room. The weapon's presence wasn't unusual, but if anything went off, even assuming no one was injured, the negotiation failed and Mag lost her payment. Of course, if she was dying of a bullet wound in her gut before the storm hit, affording shelter would be pointless. Mag gritted her teeth as she strode to stand, arms wide between the two tables, hoping for a non-fatal shot if she was going to be hit. The elder Rinwal son had one arm extended, bent at the wrist, probably readying some hidden dart gun. Nasheed brandished a pistol in plain view. Mag thought briefly of her concealed moonblade, but a knife was little help here. Eyes on me, Mag shouted. I said, eyes on me. Nasheed responded first, but not as she'd expected. He tensed and bent, as if to run. She looked at Rinwal, whose eyes were wide with a similar terror. Ush caught his father by the arm, face full of concern. A sudden mood change in both leaders. Mag's skin chilled. Not now, please, not now. The thermopin beeped three sharp notes. She turned its glowing light towards her face. The device has registered a sympathic heat signature, she announced. The pulse was erratic. No further activity detected. You hired a sympath, Nishi. Ush Rinwal spat with disgust. Counselor Greensword glared at him. It could be a clever ploy, Isma Rinwal suggested. This meeting is cancelled, Rinwal growled. Sympathic's fake compromises everything. Mag rapidly scanned the room, silencing her panic with pragmatism, noting where a sympath might hide. Making rapid decisions, she said, Here's what we'll do. Put those weapons away, out of the room. Take an hour lunch break. You can channel your anger into creative problem solving. Regroup among yourselves, and I'll arrange private meetings. I'll also re-secure the premises. Send your own security teams too if you like. I agree with Rinwell. Sympathetic disturbance should nullify this now. Mag crossed her arms. Is that really what you want? To schedule another negotiation date, rehire a mediator, all with those daily fines? She turned her palms up. 
It's your money, not mine. She refolded her arms to hide the shaking. She wouldn't consider a reality in which this negotiation was canceled. Not yet. All right. One more chance. The sympath pulse was erratic. Perhaps it was circumstantial. Perhaps room security will solve it. I'm not comfortable, but I hate delays even more. I'll risk a little for the chance to be done with this. After a pause, Rinwall grunted agreement. Mag set up private conference times as the delegates prepared to leave. As they exited, storm dust swirled into the conference room. Mag stood in the empty room while her heart pounded manically. Boiling coffee on a stove without matches, an overheated engine with an excited young rider, her own uncharacteristic fear after the close call railroad crossing. The instances hit in a stinging stream. Tea that went from lukewarm to chilled, the strange discount at the LOI gate, and of course, the religiously worn sleeves that concealed the forearms. She really should have known. Mag pressed her palms to her cheeks. Secure the room first. Obscure all line of sight options. There were no windows. The walls had no doors or alcoves. This left the ceiling air vents as the only place a sympath could feasibly maintain visual contact and stay hidden. Mag enlisted two boys from groundskeeping to fasten dark sheets over all air vents, then headed straight for her hotel room, heart in her throat. Do you have any idea what you almost did in there? Leo sat cross-legged on the bed, eyes innocent and wide. He hadn't even bothered to replace the air vent screws they lay loose on the bedside table. Leo. She grabbed his shoulders. I know it was you. I know you're a sympath. He twisted away. You needed me. I saved you. Weapons were too dangerous. My lucky bracelet, not enough. He'd interfered while she'd stood in harm's way, revealed himself as a sympath in order to protect her and at great personal risk. Warmth bloomed in Mag's chest, but she resisted it, holding tightly to her rage. The kid must be ignorant of the horrors that greedy bastards inflicted on child sympaths. Or was he? Had Leo's mother been killed for birthing a child with sympathic abilities? Keshian law now forbade the union of Simmer and an empath. Her words trembled. If you meddle again, it'll be worse for me than if I were shot. Leo twisted his mouth in disbelief and Mag seized his collar. He whimpered. Stay out of this. That's an order, not a request. He seemed to shrink as he nodded, face pale, shoulders drooping. Mag found a maid and paid her generously from her dwindling purse to watch and stay with Leo. Of course, if Leo wanted to use his gift to dismiss the maid, he could. But Mag judged by the stark fear in his face that he'd respect her wishes. She crammed a fistful of nuts into her mouth on the way out the door. From there, she had five minutes before her first client conference. I'll speak frankly, Nasheed said as Mag joined him and his advisors at their courtyard table. Machinery groaned above them as the Alakesh unrolled its roof cap to prepare for the storm. Dust thickened the air and purple streaks were darkening overhead. Mag coughed to clear her lungs and accepted Nasheed's offered bread and dipping spices. Rinwal is a bully with no creativity who can't even control his own sons. She smiled crisply. Mudslinging only hampers resolution. Contrary to logic, as this may seem, now is your time to make Mr. Rinwal a unilateral offer. Nasheed snorted. <laughs> and why would I want to do that? 
it's your best chance of getting an offer from him. He stared at her for a moment, then straightened. Counselor Dejab readied her writing pad. Your vendors and product sales are his main point of contention. You might focus there. As she stood to leave, Nasheed said, That's all you have to say? I strive to guide and facilitate, Mr. Nasheed. You have some very intelligent aides to advise you. As she turned to go, Counselor Greensword flashed her an approving smile. Mag had purposefully given Rinwall the later time slot. Despite Nasheed's turbulent emotions during the negotiation, she judged Rinwall as the man who needed more time to cool off. He was on the rooftop veranda, smoking a cigar over the remains of his lunch while his son sat in tense silence. The roof cap above bore an artful projection of a clear blue sky over far mountains. When Mag suggested Rinwall make Nasheed an offer, he balked in similar fashion. He is not getting any more land. Territory isn't his objective, she reminded. He takes issue with your new weapons and the increased violence. Removing my people's protection would only invite more problems. Both Isma and Ush seemed ready with comments, but Rinwal only glanced at Ush and shook his head. He ignored Isma completely. If I may have a word, Mag said suddenly. It was an impulse, but she felt confident as she led Rinwal to the balcony railing. He dangled his cigar over the open air and watched the hazy trail. The wind had dropped to dead calm. The storm was poised and ready. She shivered, pushed the thought away, and lit her own cig in silence. This is the truth. You'll poison your future more quickly by choosing favorites between your sons than you'll ever lose to granting Nasheed a few concessions. Rinwal pulled his cigar from his mouth, wordless. She left him still frowning. Unbiased empathy was the mediator's best and most delicate tool. Mag took a minute to refresh herself in one of the Alakesh's powder rooms, prayed for the eighth time that Leo would stay put, then strode into the conference room with a show of confident optimism. Nasheed seemed relaxed. He was smiling his trademark grin again. Rinwal sat with a son on each side. All three men had their heads held high. He nodded to Mag, and she knew he'd spoken to Ush and Isma. This was the moment in the endgame when Mag compelled herself to truly love her clients, to feel Rinwal's anger at Nasheed's affront, to grieve with Nasheed for lives needlessly lost. She became a genuine advocate for both men, esteeming them as people with histories and souls. Mag summoned her own grief for Nika's death as she met Nasheed's eye. You lost a good friend to an early death, and yet you're here for peace. This takes courage. He nodded and looked down quickly. Next, Mag summoned the gnawing betrayal of the day Nika announced she didn't need Mag in her life anymore. She met Rinwal's gaze and said, You've endured a broken contract and the shame of family disloyalty, yet you've chosen to hear out your opponent. This reveals honor. Rinwal frowned and rubbed his knuckles, but Mag knew she'd hit her mark. The thermopin remained blessedly silent as she continued. A successful negotiation is a dance of give and take. You'll likely compromise more than you planned. Now is the time to make a request and, perhaps, an offer. The chandeliers flickered. Consider that a warning to work quickly. Nasheed began immediately. 
My northern sales are a point of contention. Some instances of resale will remain beyond my full control. However, I'm offering today to relocate my three main Duja distribution centers an additional 10 miles south of the Hebra, which will decrease the proximity issue. In addition, I'll impose a fine of 500 crescents for vendors I catch selling product across the river. I ask that you replace the scatter blitzes with something less destructive, which will still give your people the protection they deserve. I can't stop the migration of customers coming south, but I can offer you my consultation services for improving your product's marketability. The last bit was a cheeky move, but Rinwall didn't seem to mind. Rinwall said, I can't confiscate the scatterblitzes. It would make my people feel vulnerable. I can, however, mandate training and make a selective protocol for who is permitted to carry such arms with severe consequences for breaking the protocol. I will set strict terms of engagement with weapons. In addition, I request a cessation of all marketing campaigns aimed at customers in the North. He leveled a glare at Nasheed. You know the ones I mean. Nasheed grinned. Rinwal added, I'm pleased to hear you've already considered stricter guidelines for your vendor's sales. I wouldn't want more accidents to befall those who venture beyond our defined trade zones. Without skipping a beat, Nasheed returned. And I'd hate for another bad batch of Duja to destroy your customers' trust in you. I doubt you could afford that right now. There. Both men had made their thinly-veiled threats as means of insurance. Not the brightest outlook, but they had an understanding. All right, I've written the offers and demands on the board. We'll finesse the wording until we reach something acceptable to everyone. As she lifted her pen, distant thunder rumbled. The negotiations worst might have passed, but not the storms. Her mind returned to its rattling question. What am I going to do with you, Leo? Less than an hour later, the agreement was being sent to print. Mag watched Nasheed cross to Rinwal's table to shake hands with him and his sons. It wasn't warmth that passed between the two factions. It was a fragile bridge. But it was enough. Rinwal had offered to personally make restitution to Bruss and Seth's family, and this small gesture had sped the negotiations' completion. Once the document was officially signed on both paper and Digg SIG pads, Mag set the thermopin on the tabletop and addressed the room. Congratulations. You have managed to stop tearing down and start building up. This is how great nations are built. You should feel very proud. A murmur of assent swept the tables. Then the moment broke and Rinwal approached Mag. You've addressed not just the problems at hand, but given me a new mirror to examine myself as both leader and father. He smiled, and Mag sensed the rarity of it. Wisdom has bloomed today. May the eye show mercy and success on your future work. She bowed. Nasheed caught her in a firm handshake as she turned. <laughs> You're at the top of my list now. Well, let's hope I don't have to hire you again anytime soon. <laughs> he laughed loudly. After one more round of gracious farewells, she ducked out and headed for the elevator, forcing herself not to run. Mag needed no warning against forming an emotional attachment to a sympath. The foreboding pulsed like poison in her blood. 
The kid might as well have used his sway on her during the entire trip to Eloi, but in this hallway he couldn't see and therefore couldn't sway her. Yet Mag's determination to shelter him remained. To her surprise, she found Leo sitting on the hotel room floor playing a game of talent with the maid. She rushed to hug him wordlessly, then paid the maid and locked the door. Pack your things, the storm's almost here. Leo's stare indicated his need for explanation. His words echoed in her mind. Help me to learn who I do. Thank you for trying to protect me. I realize now that when you asked to learn, you meant sympath training. I don't know where to start, but I'll try to help you. For now, I have to get us someplace safe. He nodded. Thunder clapped overhead and the clouds burst. Too late for safe. Mag hastily double-checked the new numbers in her account, then pulled up the address of the bunker she'd researched the day before. Though she might have squatted for a time in the Alakesh foyer, she knew the hotel would have found a way to charge her beyond her means, and Leo wasn't safe in a crowd. They needed a bunker's isolation. As they left the lobby, Mag grabbed a gilded mirror off the wall and hoisted it above her head, muttering to Leo, The things I do for you already. The bunker was two blocks away. The acid rain wasn't pounding yet, but slanting lines in the purple haze were racing towards them. Leo pushed the firebrand and Mag shielded them with the mirror. Leo froze the first time she screamed. The acid was eating her hands. She cursed at him. Don't stop till you reach that blue door. She wasn't sure she had more than bones left on her fingers and her shoulder blades flamed where her jacket had melted away, but they made it. The place smelled of bleach and scrubbed steel. She wrapped her bleeding hands in bandages given to her by the bunker's proprietor, parked the firebrand along the brick wall of their private room, wiped the bike down, checked the fluids, then arranged Echo Tin, Snoop, gun, some random food packs, and Leo's bracelet on a wall ledge. She eyed the window. She'd paid extra for the slit of green glass, but now she wished she hadn't. Leo strained on tiptoe, trying to improve his view of the outside. He must have never seen the storm wall, but surely he'd heard the stories. Mag had spoken to a few storm survivors. Sometimes the rain melted flesh, sometimes it melted the mind. The Alakesh had its retractable roof cap, but most LOI citizens couldn't afford such things. Well, there was no hiding it from Leo. They'd be stuck watching this for two weeks. Bruised purple clouds were throbbing above them. Mag put a bandaged hand on Leo's shoulder and was surprised by the dullness of her pain. She'd savor the effects of shock and adrenaline while they lasted. First came the hissing acid pellets, sizzling semi-solids at the storm's head. Then the small fires as a few pellets found wood. A minute later, glass cracked somewhere beyond. With the glass broken, the storm whipped into homes. Then the screams. After an awful minute, Leo touched Mag's arm. Want me to set something up on the echo tin? He nodded. They retreated together into the Million courtyard. Leo curled around his helmet and shut his eyes while Mag thought of the storm she'd escaped, only to hole up with a different kind of peril. Leo needed training. The kid created his own kind of luck, but untrained luck like his was a hazard to anyone near him and a magnet for power players. She couldn't just turn him loose when the storm was over, could she? Mag forced herself into the present. At least this room kept Leo safe for now. Folk hatred for sympaths and the black market value of young ones were bleak realities. Two weeks without a sig. Best not to think about that, either. She slipped out of the projection and stood again at the window. The bunker's proprietor had warned her that the grid shut off for the first few hours of the storm and that after the storm wall passed, the first electric light outside became a sign of hope. 
wails and roars thudded dully against the bunker walls. Even in this short string of days, Leo could betray her. He could twist her mind against itself and bolt, leaving her with nothing. Sympaths were famous for that. All her charity, all the risks she had taken for him, could still end in curses and suffering. Yet the kid had tried to save her life when he'd thought it endangered. Mag leaned her forehead on the glass. She always took more chances than was wise. It was her nature. Some risks were worth it. Sometime later, Leo leaned against her side. He was cradling his helmet on his chest. Look, Mag whispered, pointing. High above, strung between two crumbling apartment towers, a single line of white lights glowed bravely like stars.